This podcast is brought to you by Future Women, a new home for women to come together online and in person. Become a member to gain full access to Future Women's content, events and community. Plus, our packed calendar of member-only social club events. For more details, head to futurewomen.com. Hello, I'm Brooke Boney, your host for Season 2 of Next Generation Innovators, a podcast where we tap into the stories behind some of Australia's most successful entrepreneurs and how they've scaled their ideas into global businesses. So whether you're in business, you own one, or you dream of doing it yourself, these conversations will guide you through the ups and downs of startups, from ideation and development to investment and scale. Some of these women are incredibly inspiring and I cannot wait to share these conversations with you. You're about to hear from the woman who says that in five to 10 years time, AI could play a much bigger role in your life. And I'm not just talking about Alexa or Siri, I'm talking about transhuman artificial intelligence. Originally where we had mainframes in in a room or, or a building next door, then we had computers in cupboards in the office. Then we had them on our desk, our desktop. Then we had them in our hands with mobile devices. Now we wear them, the wearables. The next phase, of course, is for that software to be embedded in our bodies. Dr. Katrina Wallace has been recognised by the Australian Financial Review as the most influential woman in business and entrepreneurship. She's also achieved Advance Australia's highest award in technology and innovation for Australians working abroad and recently won the FinTech Leader and Overall Excellence in Finance Award by Women in Finance. Based between the US and Australia, Dr. Katrina Wallace is the founder and executive director of the artificial intelligence FinTech and ASX-listed company Flamingo AI. It's only the second female-led ASX-listed company. Future Women's Next Generation Innovators podcast is brought to you by Uber. Uber ignites opportunity by setting the world in motion. Uber believe good things happen when people can move, whether across town or toward their dreams. Opportunities appear, open up, become reality. What started as a way to tap a button to get a ride has led to billions of moments of human connection as people go all kinds of places in all kinds of ways with the help of Uber's technology. Thank you so much for joining us, Katrina. Your company, Flamingo, is one of the only artificial intelligence companies listed on the ASX. And for those of us not in the game, what actually is artificial intelligence? Well, artificial intelligence has been around since the 1950s, where originally it was coined by some professors at Dartmouth University to mean any type of software that can mimic human intelligence. So that's essentially what it is. Uh, I know we get lots of other sci-fi definitions, (laughs) but essentially software which is based on algorithms that can do human intelligence. Okay. Yeah, that's what I'm I'm imagining, that movie um, Lucy, you know, where the the machine starts taking over everyone's lives and the house and and whatnot, Um, which I imagine is is how a lot of people think of AI, right, Right. who aren't in the business. Right. So we should think about it like that in about 10 years' time, not 
today. Okay. Can't do that today, but we would expect that it absolutely could do things like those things that Hollywood portrays in the future. Wow. So how how do you think then it's going to transform um, the business world as we know it and, and what sort of impact do you think it's going to have, um, you know, maybe in the next five years and then, as you mentioned, in the next ten years? Right. Well, artificial intelligence is the fastest growing tech sector in the world currently. So in the last 12 months, $38 billion invested into it. And it's been described as the same level of impact as when fire was invented or when electricity came to the Industrial Revolution. So, in fact, predicted to be far more impactful a force than even the internet was when it came in the 70s originally. So very, very strong impact. And we're seeing that it will probably do two things. It will amplify existing business systems and technology and augment humans in the way we do work. That to me, and I imagine many people listening right now, is unimaginable. I mean, that our lives are going to change so much in a way that we sort of can't really grasp um, in a very short period of time. Right, it, it is. And we think about the impact on jobs. That's the first thing that comes to people's mind. So what we're seeing is within the next five years, 40% of jobs in financial services, retail, hospitality, tourism, uh, telecommunications, automated, so these are admin and service type jobs, automated and done by machines such as what my company provides uh, within the next five years. 30% of customer interactions, of all type of customer interactions, automated within the next three years. So we're really at that time where human and machine working together are upon us. It's no longer in the future. It's no longer science fiction. It's, It's absolutely here and now. And what the analysts like Gartner, the big IT analysts are saying is we would expect $1.2 trillion of value to go from those companies that don't have AI to those companies that do have AI within the next two years. Wow. And so you've told a conference um, earlier this year that there are three major problems facing the world at the moment. Climate change, which makes sense. Nuclear war also makes sense. And disruptive technologies. Can you tell me about the danger that you see in disruptive technologies, particularly those uh, that harness the power of AI? Yes, so people are quite surprised when I talk to them about those three major world challenges and the things that really are a current threat to humanity. And so the arrival of disruptive technologies, and AI would be the most prolific force, but there we've also got... Um, cybersecurity, Internet of Things, uh, blockchain, crypto technologies, these sorts of things also starting to come to the fore and, and will have a profound effect. But one of the big challenges why we think it's uh, a challenge to humanity is there's a couple of levels of it. So one is that the time of singularity where the machines are actually smarter, more capable and not needing to be controlled by humans is about 20 years away, so very much within uh, our immediate future. Um, On the way there, the machines will just get smarter and smarter and able to do more things. Now, that's good, and and there is uh, a beautiful philosophy, which I also subscribe to, which is 
the coming of the machines indeed can make we humans more human. So if it automates all the mundane tasks that we do at home or we do at work, then that's a great thing. It frees us up to be more human. And to be more human might be a return to creativity, to relationships, to problem solving, to basic science, to the arts. That would be great. And so most of us AI philosophers think that there will be sort of probably half of time and money spent on AI will result in good AI. But equally, we think there's probably a lot that's going to go badly. And this comes from AI being unregulated. There are no rules or laws really that um, guide what we AI vendors are producing, what large enterprises are using AI for. And currently, we already know that there's a huge amount of bias built into the algorithms that are going to be running our world. And this is for a couple of reasons. One is currently there's less than 10% of coders or engineers in this field that are women. And there's an absence of diversity at the table. So not only women, but an absence of minority groups in teams that are coding these machines for the future. So that's a big problem. Then the actual data that's being used to train the algorithms is already full of inherent biases and and if interested I can give some examples of that yeah so tell me about what what that sort of bias means in in um, in real life because you know I can see that or I could guess that um, you know when we talk about the advantages um, you know that people who are quite wealthy might be able to have like a, an easier life but then I guess people who um, may be not so wealthy I guess their lives m- might not be impacted by the positive things that AI can can bring to to society? Right. Well, we know that within the next two years, there'll be 1.8 million jobs displaced because of the coming of AI, and there'll be 2.3 million jobs created. Now, unfortunately, it won't be the same 1.8 who lose their jobs who get the new 2.3 million jobs. 90% of those who will lose their jobs will be women or minority groups. So we're seeing this kind of whole AI force pushing really the divide between the haves and the have-nots or those who are underserved or underrepresented more extreme. And and that's the big worry that we have about it, unless there's good leadership. So I'll give you a few examples of where it is biased. So um, there's a great uh, use case or case story in the US with a company called Compass that provides an algorithm to help Supreme Court judges decide whether an offender is going to re-offend and it'll give them a number, a score, and the judge will then go, okay, well, I'll use that score to help sentence this person to time in jail. So because the Compass algorithm was trained on historical data, the historical data, because of the way the world is today, had a much higher incidence of African-American men who were being sent previously incarcerated. Firstly arrested and then sentenced to like longer sentences. Right, right. right. Yeah. So then the data itself has now been used to train the algorithm, the AI that is advising the judge. And so every time an African-American man will come before the court, the judge, the AI would uh, assess that and give a higher likelihood that this person was going to re-offend. So the judge used that and gave the person a higher sentence. Oh, no. Which is just not fair. 
it's just not fair. Another example is there is an app called Babylon, which was um, AI-based, used for detecting heart attacks. But what they realised was when a 55-year-old male had a heart attack, it was regarded as a heart attack and telematic data was um, released and the person was alerted and medical help was alerted. When a 55-year-old woman had exactly the same symptoms, it registered as a panic attack and didn't have the same first responder type outcome. And so that was all over the news in the last month. Uh, Amazon had a recruitment app that learnt over time only to recommend predominantly males into positions in the business. So if we're training these machines and algorithms, but we're using historical data, which is already full of bias, it's not going to go so well. Well, so if it's being informed by um, people's biases that are not even things that they would, views that they would hold now, but ones that maybe they would hold like 20 or 30 years ago, it's in fact worse than the progress that we've already made. It's in fact worse. That's right. And, and it's hard coding all society's problems that we've been played with straight into these machines and there's no regulation. Now, having said that, I've been working very closely with Minister Andrews and also the Human Rights Commissioner Ed Santo, champion, on the Ethics in Human Rights Framework for Australia for Artificial Intelligence, which was just released in the last week, along with the government's AI roadmap. So finally, Australian government is getting on top of this and indeed have invested about $29 million in, in looking to how we do responsible innovation in Australia. Tell me about your business baby, Flamingo. How did it start? I mean, how did you identify that that gap? Yeah. So I had uh, two other companies, ACA Research, market research company, and Fifth Quadrant Customer Experience Design Firm. And I just noticed that customers, when we were doing research of customers, they were still having a very poor to average experience with whatever enterprise that they were dealing with. And then on the customer experience design firm side, we knew that companies were paying us millions of dollars to help them design better customer experiences. So I saw that there was a fundamental problem in business. One is business is based on industrial models, more like manufacturing, and humans are based on behavioural models. So the two things were actually never designed to work together. And I thought, what if we developed a piece of software that sat between the customers and enterprise and could actually help guide a customer's journey through the enterprise in a much better way than they're currently doing. And to do that at scale and to automate that, we would have to use artificial intelligence. So that's what we did. And so in late 2014, I did funded it myself, a couple of hundred thousand dollars, and did a minimal viable product of the platform. We then got some fabulous investors like um, Kathy Reed, who went on to be our chair, who invested in the business, and we started the business here in Australia. Uh, we realised that the Australian market was not ready for artificial intelligence or a startup or a woman-led startup, so I took the business in 2015 to the US and set it up as a Delaware company in New York. And since that time, we've been running between the US and Australia. We run the business in in both countries. But for me, it was around how can I invent some technology that will make the end customer experience much better? 
and that's still, even though we're doing employee-facing robots now, ultimately for me it's still about the end customer and for me, more than that, it's about how do we empower underserved communities, so our refugee communities, our disabled communities, our Indigenous communities, who I think will be adversely affected as business gets more powerful and stronger in what they do. I'm not sure that business really looks at all of these communities as they need to do, and, right. and yeah. I'd like to play a role in that. Would you do anything differently if you could start your entrepreneurial career again? Yeah, tons. With Flamingo, we came to market with a customer-facing robot and we thought it would go really well and it just didn't quite get the traction we wanted it to and we started to commercialise it too early because there was a lot of pressure on us to do that. And so we had to pull back and pivot into what we do now, which is an employee-facing robot, which has got much greater potential now that we've got product market fit. So... One of the things I've learned is you must, and, and product market fit literally means someone is willing to pay, pay for it and use it, what we talk, use it in anger. And a lot of Australian companies particularly fail because they, they don't have proper product market fit and they try and commercialise too early. So that is one of the big lessons I've learned, that you, you must have that. The other thing that I have learned and I would do more of in my early days is truly get aligned with values, understand myself better and not think that I'm limited in some areas. And and, and I'll give you an example. So so in the um, technology field, I really felt that I probably wasn't aggressive enough, didn't have enough um, sort of that hard business approach. So I hired a bunch of people into the business who were like that thinking that they would overcome my limitation. But, in fact, they were terrible people and I had to move them on. And I realised that they were not aligned with my values and, in fact, I should have just learnt to do the things that I wasn't good at and not hiring people that I thought were better than me who had a completely different value set. So I will never do that again. Or hire those types of people but with the same values as yours. Much better. Yeah, that's what I should have done. Hard to find, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I should have done that. Yeah, okay. So what's your management style then? What pitfalls do you have to work hardest to avoid? So I'm very good on all the relationship side, so um, empowering people, my relationships with my peers, with my board, with clients, with staff, all very strong and good. The areas that I'm perhaps weakest on would be tough operations so process driven operational excellence uh, sort of driving the machine part of the business I would normally hire someone who's really good at that like a good chief operations officer so for example the CEO that I've now put in place at Flamingo Olivia Cordelia is excellent at product strategy and operations and I've got a good CFO, Jeff Nesbitt, so we can operate, they can operate all that side of it and I can do more of the evangelist, market-facing, relationship side of the business. Now that we've done some groundwork on your area of expertise, can we um, talk about your early career in education? So what did you study at university and what were your earliest jobs? <laughs> 
Yeah, so I actually only ever wanted to be a farmer and loved animals and the land and I thought I would have you know, half a dozen children and uh, um, marry a farmer and be a farmer's wife. Um, so I did a couple of years at university uh, agriculture at Sydney Uni and then realised all the people I thought were going to be farmers were becoming investment bankers. So <laughs> I, I dropped out of uni after two years and I joined the police force as an act of sort of rebellion against my comfortable middle-class lifestyle and spent about three and a half to four years in the cops uh, in the pre-Royal Commission days, the Roger Rogerson days where it was all pretty shady, but learnt a lot about life. So I was in the Kings Cross, Darlinghurst, the Rocks and then into the prosecuting branch. So I learnt a lot about life as a young person and had to learn to stand on my own. It was also a, a hyper-masculine environment. And, and interestingly enough for me, I think I've gone on to have a career in extremely masculine environments. So now uh, high-tech, financial services and the capital markets being a listed company, all of these are pretty much only exclusively deal with men. Uh, so that's been an interesting path. But so I was one of your farmer, became a cop, then started my own businesses, so a, a management consulting company, then a market research firm and a customer experience design firm, um, both of which are still still going. And during that time I also did a PhD in organisational behaviour. So that's where my interest in technology and humans came together and I studied, my thesis was the role technology will play in substituting for human leaders. Wow. Um I think, well, it sounds like the, your early experience with the cops probably put you in quite good stead because I imagine that would have toughened you up a lot, you know, being someone who's quite young and, you know, um, it's something that we all have to deal with as women. We sort of like a bit more softly spoken and maybe not as forthright as your male colleagues. In that environment, you would have just been forced to be, right? Yes, that's very true. So there were very few women. We were treated as if we were men we were not really welcome in the police in those days and so I and I was 19 to 21 I had to project myself uh, to be a lot more mature a lot stronger than I probably was deal with not only the you know the publics um, the criminals mm. but also the the police officers in the station so I think that was a, a very quick maturing factor also I was dealing with everything from armed robberies to murders to um, domestic violence and things I'd never seen before. So I matured very quickly. So I do think that it was excellent. Uh, one other small career divert I had also was I owned a nightclub in Double Bay for four years. Um, so doing that at night while I did my research and uh, customer experience design firm in the day. And that was very interesting because, of course, being a cop previously was very useful to them being a nightclub uh, owner and we, there was four of us in it. Uh, that was very helpful. So all of my eclectic career paths, I think, have resulted in me actually being quite a rounded uh, business person. Uh, so I love, particularly for women, when women think that they're kind of on these kind of weird career trajectories, one day it'll all make sense. If they're following what they want to do and there's opportunities and it's something they're passionate want to do, one day it'll all, all, all make sense not to think that they're, you know, unstable or having a you know, an unusual career trajectory. Tell me a little bit about your PhD. What drew you to that field of study? Yeah, so my PhD is in the field of organisational behaviour and then the technology-human interaction piece was my area of expertise. So I'm deeply interested in people and 
the more I get into technology, the more interested I am in in people and humanity. It's kind of a, this weird cycle, and so I I've got sort of an ability to feel what's coming in the future. Um, and in fact, I work and speak as as a futurist now, and I don't necessarily know where that comes from, but I kind of can get a sense sense of just what's going to come. And I knew, so I finished the PhD 10 years ago, I, I knew that we were going to enter a time where technology and humans would, would come together very quickly in, in a certain way. And so I was one of the first people globally to research and write about when you put high tech and humans together, what effect that would have on leadership. And my study was across 58 organisations and I statistically modelled when technology and human leadership came together, whether the leader was in fact neutralised, so had no effect, enhanced, or had a detrimental effect on the performance of the business and the and the employees. So that was kind of cool to me. And as far as PhDs goes, it's probably one of the cooler topics. Totally. <laughs> and it just set me up well to be then ready a little bit ahead of time when artificial intelligence finally came of age. And, and the reason... AI is here now and in the last, say, five years is three factors. One is we've got the computational power now to be able to uh, process the data and the algorithm, the existence of big data itself and an improvement in the algorithms themselves. So these three factors have come together, plus a fourth one, which is business and traditional models of labour, capital, technology are kind of slowing down and most enterprises now or, or any business find it very hard to get accelerated growth and that's because the models will change and, and business will change and AI will be a powerful force to make that change happen. So I think I was able to kind of predict a little bit ahead of time that these things were on foot. And so what was the, what were the results of your research? So uh, what we figured out was that there were certain behaviours that the technology should have that at certain times would work with the way a uh, human leader would work. And an example of that would be a really ideal scenario would be that the human had more relations-based behaviours and the machine had more task-based behaviours. And together with the relations from the human, the task from the machine, the outcome on the subordinate or the employee would be very, very positive. Um, and that, that kind of logical. The other one is if there was, uh, so a negative effect would be, in fact, if it was the other way around, whether there was a, a human trying to set tasks that actually the machine was better at and the machine was trying to do motivation or encouragement <laughs> that, that didn't work <laughs> so well. And then the third one is in the area around contingent, rewards so if a human is giving rewards that are non-contingent which means encouraging people when they actually haven't performed well that would tend to go badly if a machine gave feedback contingently where a person had performed something then the machine gave feedback that was actually better than a human doing it wow mm. and so do you think that that's it's really helped you understand how businesses work and how better to manage people? I think so. I do think so. And it has also, we do a lot of, at Flamingo, 
assistance with our clients thinking about from an organisational perspective how they might think about humans and machines together. So we've got a couple of clients, so HSBC is one of our clients in Australia and nationwide, a client in America. And in both those companies we've talked about how would we design an org chart that had human employees, what we call HAVA, human-assisted virtual assistant employees, or digital employees? And we're now drawing up org charts with those three types of workers on it. So I definitely think my study helped understand what an organisation design or organisational behaviour of the future or future of work is going to be. Yeah. Well, absolutely, because now you can just sort of apply what you already know to that sort of model. That that sounds great. Do you think that um, gender and the misunderstanding, stereotypes, etc., that surround gender play into your research? I mean, have they um, have they ever played themselves out in your own working life? So a couple of ways to think about that. So I'm deeply concerned with the gender issues that are going to come with this new rise of tech technologies because of the absence of women at the table in leadership and at the um, design or engineering table. So I've already mentioned that, so, so that's one challenge. The other challenge is the dislocation of women from work is another challenge. And then the real challenge is, is the bias in the code, which we've talked about a little bit. So all of those issues I'm concerned about and I'm working on. And then in my own environment, in these three areas that I work in, there's still very few women there. And, and without any question, it's extremely difficult. Like people say, you know, how's Flamingo going? Well, it's exceptionally hard. It's exceptionally hard to continue to perform and work in environments that are not perhaps innately what I as a woman, the way I would like to work and and operate so I think it's it's very hard and my role I think is to continue to champion the rights and the causes of women just as my mentors or the women that went ahead of me so and Sherry, Wendy McCarthy, Anne Summers, Ros Strong, these Eve Marlab, these women who are now in their 60s, 70s who really did it much harder than than my era have done it. These women really set the grounds. Liz Broderick, another one there, opened some pathways for the next lot of women, and I include myself in that next lot coming through. My role will be to do the same. So whether it's in the capital markets, in financial service, in high tech, to open the doors and and try and assist you know younger women or other women coming through, because we see a real challenge with women peeling off in their 30s and 40s, they get to a certain level in STEM, science, technology, engineering, math jobs, and then they then they roll off. And I can sometimes see why they would. You know, it's, it's a pretty tough field to be in. Flamingo is only the second woman-led CEO and woman-chair-led business to be listed on the ASX. Do you think that female leadership has an influence on how your business is perceived about the way it's won? So it was a great surprise to Cathy and I that the business was the second only women-led business on the ASX ever. That was, you know, we were proud of that. We were also deeply disturbed that that's the case. And it is a very, very masculine environment. And so I 
think I'm still learning about how best to navigate uh, through these kind of what I call these hyper-masculine environments, but I've learned a lot uh, how to do that. And one of the things that I am trying to do as I go through is not to lose the way I manage as a female or a woman, which I think is very different to a male counterpart, and not to lose that whilst the enormous pressures of the markets suggest that we should actually behave in in other ways. I can't imagine how uh, daunting that must feel and how, um, yeah, how different you must feel walking into some of these places that you have to go into. How do you um, sort of steady the ship or, or stay calm when you are walking into, you know, what must feel like a bit of a hostile environment at times? Well, we have had... You know, some hilarious things um, said both to me and Kathy, but um, in particular to me over the over the years that we've been in the listed environment. So I was once offered um, a million dollar investment into the company if I took my nose ring out. Uh, what? We- <laughs> what? <laughs> yes. So we were offered a million dollar investment into the company if I removed my nose ring. So obviously we said no. It's a much smaller nose ring, so we I went and got a bigger one. Um, I've been told that... Were you tempted to uh, take the million dollars? <laughs> uh, look, interestingly enough, I was not tempted at all <laughs> because I was just... It was just so extraordinary. Yeah, it was just so extraordinary. And other things that have been said along the way are, you know, Katrina, your presentation was very good. It would have made better if you brushed your hair a bit more. Um, other things have been said to me are, um, Katrina, we were trying to concentrate on your presentation, but your dress was very beautiful and it was distracting. We couldn't, you know, couldn't listen to you properly. You know, can you sort that out? So there's lots of, uh, Kathy and I once, um, were asked if we were in the wrong room when we came to present to a group of investors. So yeah, that's, that's still there. That's well and truly still there. So for me, I'm just used to me and, and there's lots that gets written on the chat rooms, uh, the investor chat rooms and things that are all very, very critical of me personally and me being a female, those sorts of things. And once upon a time it would, you know, would maybe up, upset me or affect me and now I just, nothing, just nothing. It just, these are investors, they, whether they know consciously or not that they've been critical or biased, um, I just need to get on and actually run the business and prove that we women can can be successful in the way that uh, is, is measured by the markets. And with Flingo, we're a long way from being, you know, truly successful yet. But my ambition is to do it and do it in the way that a woman would lead a business like this. What do you think is going to happen in your industry? What are, you, what's your, what are your expectations for the future of your industry about Flamingo itself and, and what do you want to see happening in the coming years? Yeah, so I would love to see artificial intelligence become just uh, one of the, the core pillars of anything that is is built in industry. So I expect that that will happen. It's, it's still early days now where there's, you know, a lot of difficulty in, in showing a return on investment from AI and only about one in 10 AI projects fully come to fruition it takes about four years to get a return on investment from an AI so I hope that all becomes easier because it's like really difficult now and we find it also really difficult Um, and I hope that there are more women and minority 
people represented in in the AI teams and in the in this powerful force that will be determining the world's humanity's future. I just really, really hope that the industry recognises quickly the role of women and uh, other minority groups and embraces that and gets on there. How do you think that we do get more women and people from minority backgrounds in um, in STEM careers and, you know, teaching young girls how to code? I guess girls who code is a big thing. Yeah, so I love all the women and girls movements around um, women and girls who code. I think they're fantastic. So that's already happening. We have to be telling more stories. So this is these podcasts that you're doing, outstanding. We have to be telling stories of women so the younger women know that there is a career that they can go and there is leadership that they can have and and that they will be guided through by uh as i was by women you know such as me and the women have gone before uh we need to get out of the bro culture or the blokey culture that uh, technology in particular and some of the stem subjects and workplaces have we need to have women in there to to increase the femininity of those workplaces so that the women will be attracted. There's a there's a long way to go in doing this and I just think we need to have more profiling of women and more active, hands-on, encouraging young women to see that there is a, a good career and it's not just a man's world. And you're proving that very much so. Thank you I'm very much. To. Yes. Thanks. You're a real inspiration. I think that the way that you think about values guiding your... Um, career choices and, and the way that you operate in the world, I think is, is, is a real inspiration to me and I'm sure many others as well. Thank you. That was Dr. Katrina Wallace. I feel like I'm going to go out and Google a whole bunch of AI stuff now. Thank you so much for joining me on Future Women Next Generation Innovators this week. Remember to leave us a comment if you like what you're hearing and share us with your friends. Future Women's Next Generation Innovators podcast is brought to you by Uber. Uber ignites opportunity by setting the world in motion. What started as a way to tap a button to get a ride has led to billions of moments of human connection as people go all kinds of places in all kinds of ways with the help of Uber's technology. 